Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack. And if you have listened to this podcast at all, you know that ADHD and myself, we're just like best friends, just going through the world hand in hand, getting distracted, forgetting to talk to our friends for six months at a time, because it's only been an hour or so since the last time we spoke, according to my brain. And as everyone knows, we're in my series of adulting with ADHD. And today I have somebody who is perhaps picked maybe the hardest thing to go through if you have ADHD. I don't know. We're going to find out. He's in medical school. Um, he's at that little tiny school that has never won any basketball championships whatsoever. North, Ca- no, sorry, Duke. <laughs> oh, please don't do that. <laughs> I will have you know we won. We got that one back from the upset last year. <laughs> Seriously, though. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's Judah. And uh, how are you doing today? I am doing good. Um, what were you talking about again? Oh, no. What was I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's just go ahead and dive into it while my brain is still functioning. Question I've asked everybody thus far. Um, when were you diagnosed? How was elementary, middle, and high schools, you know, having ADHD? How did that affect you? Was it difficult? And then have you found that once you moved to college, has that had an effect, good or positive, and have you liked it more? The floor yeah, is yours. So as far as diagnosis is concerned, I didn't get formally diagnosed with it until I was right out of undergrad, which I went to a little bit later than most folks. Um, I think I was 25. I'm 27, almost 28 now when I got okay. diagnosed. So I made it through all of my formative years into a couple years of trade school as an EMT and paramedic prior to all of this. And then I, you know, even made it through a couple years of undergrad while doing a bunch of other professional stuff with uh, ADHD. Very, very difficult. Kind of like starting out elementary school, middle school, and high school were all pretty much homeschooled. I think that helped me a lot because what I would do is hyper-focus on a curriculum. So my mom kind of discovered that I was more productive when she would just give me, instead of like, hi, here's a spring semester of middle school, do five subjects. It was like, no, here's a month, like finish all of algebra one. Okay. So it was just like condensed there in front of me, get it all done, dive deep. And so I would hyper-focus on things uh other things that i really liked that were novel and interesting which to me were you know medical topics i think i consumed human biology in like maybe 5 days it was supposed to last a typical semester wow i literally just again like hyper focused on it but my family being hyper evangelical mental health really wasn't a thing adhd was supposedly overdiagnosed cuz my father and grandfather are also vitalistic chiropractors who don't really believe in the allopathic schema of like how illness works and so they very much you know shun all of these ideas and right. they kind of were of the opinion that adhd is just overdiagnosed in general and so it really isn't a real thing but i would constantly get disciplined for not paying attention very very difficult as a child because it was like you know you had this willpower to like want to do something I remember being like maybe five or six years old and just like sitting in front of my closet and like crying my eyes out because like I wanted to clean my room but I had no executive function to actually like begin to like to start it because it's overwhelming to to start the thing yeah Yeah, I get I get tired of the they're over diagnosing something my theory is people have always had ADHD they just didn't know what it was and it wasn't diagnosed. You're, you know, like have a formal sort of medical, you know, thing where people could standard, where people could get that. Because when I was diagnosed in the 70s, I was just an annoying, hyperactive kid. <laughs> you know, there was, and it's sort of like the same thing with um, 
you know, like Alzheimer's or something, more people are getting diagnosed with it because people are living longer and it doesn't you know, affect you until later in life. And so when you get the protocols and people are like, oh yeah, well, this is the problem. That's why it appears to be overdiagnosed. They just know what it is now. Yeah. And a lot of that too is like, you know, just from a more like rational lens, I, I don't think it's entirely impossible that we aren't overdiagnosing and overmedicating people while there are still people out there with the real disease, <laughs> right. right? Like, you know, that yeah. those aren't mutually exclusive events. And right, so right. <laughs> it, it would be like, as a doctor, I'm like, hey, we overdiagnose heart attacks. So like, I know you came in with chest pain and you look like you're having a heart attack, but like, we want to be really careful that we don't, you know, overdiagnose this. It's like, it's a critical thing that if I miss that, I'm going to cause harm. So like there's a benefit harm trade-off no matter right. which way I go with that. And so the same way with ADHD, because like we now have really good evidence that if it's not diagnosed early, it leads generally to like, you know, very poor outcomes. Right. And so I don't know like where like the over, I think the overdiagnosis part arises from like good research that has shown there is a little bit of it. But then the grifters, the the purveyors of misinformation, just grab it and twist it, and it's right, exaggerated. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, did you find that being a paramedic, that having ADHD kind of was a like a good thing because it's always sort of different and not the same, and not that you want people to be injured. Don't think I'm saying that, listening audience. I'm not. But did you find that that sort of helped with that because it wasn't the same old, same old all the time and it sort of gave you that dopamine rush of or dopamine hit sort of because of the excitement? Yes and no. I mean, I think the thing that was amazing to me was just how novel it was at the beginning. And I think that was very much true. But the thing that made it difficult for me was that don't get me wrong. Like, you know, the field's uh, amazing and I learned a lot, but like, there's only so much you can do. And so I think because of how intellectual I am, the novelty of it wore off Mm -hmm. the place where it was just like, Oh yeah, there's another MI. Oh yeah. There's another shortness of breath. You know, I Mm -hmm. couldn't do the full like range of treatment and care for patients. And so that began to almost like frustrate me and it felt less novel. I think my case is special though. in that because I like, I, I tend to want to think really deeply and intellectually about topics I'm passionate about. I like novelty is harder to get for me. It's like a, it's a double-edged sword. Right. Um, but I, I definitely noticed that at the beginning, you know, it was, it was coupled with, you know, a lot of anxiety over, you know, wanting to be perfect at my job. I think, you know, everybody with ADHD struggles with like the perfectionism aspect of it. But yeah, I definitely noticed that it was much easier to just pick up another shift at work and maintain motivation than just sit at home because I would just doom scroll and was not healthy in many ways. <laughs> right. I, I can understand the being left to your own devices part. <laughs> yeah. Of yeah. Things. So have you found that your hyper-focusing, has that been helpful to you as you've been in medical school, especially since you're in your first year? Yes. Again, you know, yes and no. (laughs) Again, it's kind of like a little bit of a nuance, right? It's like, when does the hyper-focus hit and is it hitting on the stuff that you really need to like pass the next (laughs) exam or are you hyper-focusing on something that's just procrastinating, right? Like it's a a fantastic tool, but like controlling it is hard, you know, rewind back to undergrad. I couldn't really control it much, right? Because I was unmedicated, didn't really was constantly told that I didn't have it. I would go to the, I would go to the counselor's office at my undergrad university and, you know, keep in mind, I had been working in the professional sphere for a couple of years at the time and was just going back to school. But Mm -hmm. as I'm like doing all of these things in there, I'm being told there's no way you have ADHD because you have a 4.0 GPA. There's no way you have ADHD because you have anxiety and depression, which are masking the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, let me take care of the AD, you know, the anxiety and the depression. And then like, let's get this tested. Couldn't really get those under control. And so they were like, yeah, there's no way we can like medicate you or do anything about it because of X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I don't really understand what the issue is. Cause like I'm exhibiting like the telltale symptoms of it. I'm having to study like far longer than my peers. The only thing that's keeping me going is the motivation to like succeed, like perfectionism. Right. And 
I'm, you know, burning the midnight oil constantly, not really getting much sleep, chugging monsters like it's going out of style. So it's like I, I'm always hop, having to be hopped up pretty much on like, you know, a caffeine stimulant in order to focus. Right. In medical school, that's kind of gone away because now I'm like, you know, medicated and I'm on a stimulant. And so what I've noticed is now my like hyper-focused sessions are more targeted to like what actually needs to be, get done. Okay. And there's a lot more ability to like discipline myself for various things. And so now that hyper-focus, like you talked about, is becoming an advantage because it's like it, there's a little bit more control in turning it on and turning it off. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's why when you uh, said you wanted to come on, I thought this would give us a very cool perspective because, you know, not everybody goes to medical school and it's not easy by design and you, you know you you want somebody to have you know really work their butt off to you know operate on people that seems important to me <laughs> but so this is going to seem a little out there but it has come up in quite a few of my interviews with people since you mentioned that things that typically are stimulants for non ADHDers make us calm and focus more so here's my my outlandish question for you. What do you think cocaine would do for someone with ADHD? Would that give us the ultimate focus? Would it be like that uh, Bradley Cooper movie where he took the pill and he was suddenly smarter? The Matrix. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I feel like my this is where my knowledge of pharmacology, unfortunately, <laughs> comes to bear. I think the dosing of cocaine would probably give us so much anxiety that it would offset any sort of effects <laughs> we would be gaining from it right because right. let's be honest what is a stimulant right like right. Uh, pharmacological <laughs> stimulant for adhd is generally like a low dose of methamphetamine right <laughs> so you know it the dose makes the poison and, and and you know we're using this low dose to upregulate dopamine receptors without like flooding the system and causing all these other effects that we don't want. Um, but yeah. We we decided that a study needed to be done, but the people doing the study could not have ADHD because the study would only last about two months and then they'd lose focus and it would just die. Don't even get me started on that. I love research and I have like, I've learned that I have to have five projects going at once because by the time I've moved the one forward in the progress of like data collection or write-up or whatnot, I, it's then like the other one's novel again. So then I can turn right. back in and then get it, back to it down the field, the finish line. <laughs> Don't like just give me one project because otherwise it's just going to sit there forever. <laughs> right. And I, I understand. I understand. I have uh, had a lot of hobbies over the years that suddenly they're no longer interesting. <laughs> so I, I completely understand uh, you having that. So one question though, that I've been asking everybody is, how are you in math past division? Are you friends? I was actually friends with algebra. I mean, like algebra one and algebra two were fine. Um, I was scared of calculus just because of, I think, like, you know, general like performance anxiety, like scared I was going to like get a bad grade in it or whatnot. But then I took like life sciences calculus in undergrad and it actually wasn't that bad. I think I walked out with like high 90s. It was not easy by any means. I didn't mm -hmm. necessarily like it, but I love statistics. I love like just statistical reasoning, scientific reasoning, things like that. Mm -hmm. I do find it so sometimes boring, like, and I need to like discipline myself to get through it. But mm -hmm. I found right. payoff is enough for me because it enables me to do like better research or communicate with statisticians on projects or like any of the stuff that I'm doing professionally. So we're friends, but I wouldn't say we're, I'm like, hyper focus obsessed on math for example my brother who's i believe somewhere on the spectrum but again like family dynamics not diagnosed with it he is like a whiz at calculus and higher level math i mean calc 3 aced it in engineering school just hmm. right really um that's not me i know how to take mathematical facts and try to reason with them and combine that with other sorts of evidence that's kind of where I shine, um, but yeah. So so far, you are one of two that does not hate the maths. So for this particular thing, you're a weird outlier, you you weirdo. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to being a, a little bit of an outlier in a lot of ways. So, you know, this is, uh, I'm in my comfort zone. <laughs> so the other thing that I've been asking everybody 
and so far, including myself, this is 100%, but it requires like a little sort of story. Say it's Friday at 5.30 and you and, I don't know, Bill are in the car. And you need to say, you're trying to get out three things, A, B, and C. You get to B, and then in the course of the conversation, things just change and you never get to C, right? So Sunday at like 3.30, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I never got to C. I need to go do. So you go and find Bill and you're like, you just start talking as if 48 hours hasn't elapsed. And Bill should know exactly what you're talking about. Do you do that? Absolutely. 110%. I think that's like a ubiquitous <laughs> ADHD thing. Um, yes. I forget what the question is on the... I forget what the question is on the ADHD like diagnostic questionnaire, but it's something along those lines. It's like, do you frequently pick up conversations right where they were left off with no no like you know background information? <laughs> yes, yes, I do that. <laughs> what I've done to compensate for it, and what is also annoying to people, is I will explain the background incessantly in order to link it. But because of the ADHD, <laughs> I'm like, so see, we got here. And then we took this like traversing path and then now we're here and the other person's just confused. They're like, I don't know how you got from point A to point Z. Yeah. And how is that even relevant to B? Also, what in the world is C? Right. Crazy. <laughs> I, I do that frequently to my wife and sometimes she'll respond with, which conversation last week are you starting up again? Because I don't know. And I'm like, uh, uh, that well? Here we go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, well, we were just talking. She's like, okay. Um, but, you know, she should just remember every single conversation that we have and know that eventually I'm going to come back to it. It doesn't matter if it's three days or six months. Right? Absolutely. How I mean, is that how my fault? They, how dare they? How dare they forget the conversations that we have going on in our brains? How rude. Yeah, those damn neurotypicals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so far, that one's 100%. Here's, here's the other the other scenario. You're at a Christmas party, right? It's a big open concept house. There are like 30 people there, which means, you know, there are 10, 12 different conversations going on. You're in the kitchen talking with uh, Bertha, who's 18 inches in front of you, but you can't hear a word of what Bertha's saying because you hear the conversation on the other side of the room, you know, what they're doing and smatterings of the other conversations so you have to sort of compensate for that by extremely focusing on what Bertha is saying. But in the course of trying so hard to focus on what Bertha is saying, you now can't focus on what Bertha is saying. Does that happen to you? Absolutely. That is literally the downfall of sometimes my like social life, if you will, is if I don't have the mental energy to do that, that's not happening. And so I'm just not paying attention to what somebody is saying and it comes off as rude and self-centered right? <laughs> and all of the other things that neurotypicals are gonna like throw into that conversation. And I'm just like, I, I got nothing for you. Like, I'm sorry, can't explain like that I actually care about your conversation, but like, I kind of don't, like my brain just like doesn't have the energy for it. <laughs> there's, there's just too much going on. Yeah, so far we're we're 100% on that one as well. Welcome to the club <laughs> that you've been a member of for a long time. Yes. And, and do you find when you leave the party that you're just exhausted from spending three hours constantly trying to, you know, maintain your connection with everyone else? Because I find that to be so tiring. Yeah, I find that exhausting. It, it's funny because... I really like people. I don't know if you get this way where you get like excited about people because you like especially mm -hmm. novel people because they're interesting and there's right. new things to figure out. But as soon as you've like put forth that effort, it's just exhausting and the entire battery's drained. And then you have to like retreat somewhere where there's like no stimuli and you can just kind of like sit under the covers and doom scroll or just like read a lighthearted book or like, I don't know, I have to do something to where I'm just out of the noise. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, that makes perfect sense. I think that's one of the reasons why I like being at home more than other places. Cause it's just like comforting where all my stuff is Yeah, that I like, <laughs> and I don't have to focus on other stuff. And let me also ask you if this occurs, if I'm reading and my wife or somebody comes to talk to me, I have no idea that they're even speaking to me because I overcompensate by not focusing on if it's something I'm interested in, which if I'm reading it, I'm probably interested in it. 
So I just, the rest of the world just sort of goes away. So my wife will come in and start talking to me. And then finally she'll get my attention. And she's like, who do you think I was talking to? We're the only two people in the house. And I'm like, I don't know. You talk to the dogs all the time. Them? Maybe? You're on the phone? You know, because you always got your earbud in. So you could be on the phone. I don't know. I didn't hear you. I was reading. That happened to you? Absolutely. I, uh... <laughs> It's like a hyper focus because you're interested, right? And you're just engrossed. And then I don't know if you get this way. I almost get like a visceral anger when somebody takes me out of it because it's like I I try not to be an angry person, but it like makes me anxious because I'm like, oh no, I may not get back into that state of flow. Right. Like, <laughs> who are you and why did you ruin my life? Um <laughs> I yeah. Cause it's like <laughs> it took me 10 minutes to get to this level of focus. And now is it you know, am I ever gonna be able to achieve that focus again? You know, I, yeah, I, I understand. I don't know how many times at work I have been, you know, had music on and somebody will come and start talking to me. And I'm just like, how dare you interrupt me while I listen to this song for the 27,000th time, <laughs> you know, how, how you, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so far I've, I get the feeling that even though ADHD is completely unique in everybody that I've started to think we're more similar than maybe we realize because so far we all have done sort of we're all like 85 percent with the same sort of you know issues that we've had and i don't know maybe maybe the neurotypicals are the neurodivergence and we're the neurotypicals honestly i mean it's it's the greatest like um superpower in a way but also the greatest disability because you have (laughs) like you know when there's a something you care about and you can dive deep on it I don't know if I've ever met anybody that is like a high functioning academic now that I'm in like academic medicine and I'm around like high functioning academics it doesn't appear to have these traits. I mean, they just like when they're doing a project, like they're just like all into it. Right. And they will just like grind on that project until it is done. And then they're not going to touch that again for a while. And then they're going to come back to it, hyper focus on it again. And they can get an extraordinary amount of work done. Versus your typical neurotypical like productivity advice in academia is like work on it for an hour or two a day. And if you work on it slowly but surely, you'll wind up getting your project done. And it's like, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way for me. Like I can't, I'm not going to be able to generate the like inertia that I need for an hour or two a day. <laughs> right. I. It's like, I don't even have the, like the focus to start doing the thing for an hour because it's just an hour. Why do it for an hour? You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess that's you know, so, you know what I'm saying because we have a hard time starting the thing. So once you start an hour is not enough time, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, one thing that I've, I've started calling, I prefer the term neurospicy to neurodivergent. I just feel that that, that fits better, neurospicy. I just like that probably because I like Mexican food. I don't know. Um, so let me ask you this. What is the strangest, you know, rabbit hole hyper-focused topic that you have ever gone down? Because mm. we all have that one weird thing. I think we've all, at some point in time, everybody's gone down the conspiracy theory, like rabbit hole, where you're just like, I wonder why these people believe what they believe. And then you literally find all the websites about how like the Nazis have like set up UFO camps in the like hollowed out holes of the earth. And you're just right. like, so I, I've gotten so interested in that stuff sometimes because I'm like, my family, some extended family, some friends, like, actually believe this stuff. This is interesting. And then before you know it, I know all of the facts about all of this conspiracy. It's not helpful. It's not useful. <laughs> but I'm like, no. hyper focused on it at all. <laughs> right, right. My question for the their giant underground cities is where did they put all the dirt? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure right? the Lord works in mysterious ways. So I, I got nothing. I don't either, because they're like, there's a tunnel that goes from Denver to Washington, D.C. And I'm like, but do you, that's a lot of dirt. Is it, though? Or did <laughs> they just, like, use their lasers to blast it away? Well, gosh, dang it. You're probably onto something. Maybe. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I literally, I research this stuff all the time. By research, <laughs> I mean, Google, so. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, Dr. Google, you can, you know, build the next Saturn rockets with just google i mean come on <laughs> oh yeah we're having a great great time with like having ai like link in with google as well like it seems to be going fantastic so <laughs> yeah right that's actually one of the things i find funny is you know you have a whole bunch of people 
TikTok is getting your data. And I'm like, do you not think that we're not just throwing that crap away right now anyway? Mm-hmm. Do you have a Facebook? Did you have a, well, I don't know about MySpace, but do you have all of these things? Because they all got your your data. How else do you think that when you and your wife are talking about, you know what we really need are some new towels. And then all of your ads for the next week are from towel companies. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think we've we've sailed way past that they're getting your data stage. Yeah, <laughs> it's in, it's interesting. That's kind of I think a lot of the talk in the the like technology ethics sphere here at Duke is we have a ton of researchers who are just looking into like technology law and ethics because it's just getting out of control to like who has control of what, what what kind of like lobbying are they doing to get ahead of like other companies to potentially like you know actually truly violate rights in ways that are are kind of scary. It, it's quite interesting just because, you know, at these big universities, what used to be our like bioethics department seems to be almost exclusively like focused on technology ethics now. Hmm, or interesting. Which is right, right. So um, since, since you're here, do you have any idea what sort of uh, field you want to go into in the medical community? Yeah, so I'm... I'm really attracted to cardiology just because, I mean, the organ itself is fascinating. It's got so many things that can go wrong with it. It's got kind of multiple domains, right? You've got your plumbing system with your coronary vessels. You've got your kind of vasculature that's going around the rest of the body that sometimes is affected by the cardiovascular system itself. You've got the electrical part of it, you've got Mm -hmm. the actual like inner plumbing of like the valves and things that can go wrong there. So you get, you get kind of like multiple domains rather than it being say something like, you know, the brain has electrical aspects to it, but it doesn't really have like the intricacy of the plumbing or, or whatnot. Like I don't, I found neurology was interesting, but it wasn't quite as much of my thing as cardiology. Mm None of the other like internal medicine specialties, like, you know, nephrology or, you know, kidney disease and whatnot, they're kind of interesting, but they didn't really grab my attention. I think the, uh, with my background, I definitely know I could do emergency medicine because it has enough novelty to keep my ADHD Mm -hmm. checked. And then I could possibly just do cardiology research on the side to keep my cardiology intellectual pieces like intact. But I think right now I'm leading cardiology or specifically like doing critical care cardiology or more electrophysiology where you actually go in and do procedures, ablations, electrophysiology studies to like determine why abnormal heart rhythms are arising. Gets a little bit into the nitty gritty. It's a little bit more slow moving with a lot less novelty. So I'm like trying it out and shadowing a bunch of my mentors in these fields to be like, do I actually enjoy the day-to-day of this? Is it too boring? Is it going to be like something that I can maintain long-term? But um, that's at least where my intellectual interests are. We'll see if like it practically works with like my neurophenotype. Um, <laughs> okay, right. I think t- time will tell. Yeah, there's a subspecialty of cardiology that I'm exploring right now, advanced heart failure and heart failure, heart transplantation. That's along those mm-hmm. lines. And it's fascinating. So, so complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, oof, I can't imagine the, that just has to be the first few times you were to operate on somebody's heart. That has to be kind of a mental hurdle to get over. I would think, I don't know. Um, Cause I know that you realize you have all the training and everything, but the first time you're like, I am cutting open someone's chest has to be an interesting feeling. I know that you're not quite at that stage in your career, but I mean, I've been through cadaver lab now, so I've at least been inside a couple of human chests um, and like held hearts and done like dissections and whatnot. So there's been some experience that I have with that. And I remember the first time I was like inside of a human chest, like for real, because as a paramedic, I mean, I've done, you know, needle decompressions, I've done CPR and probably 30, 40 people. Like I'm used to being in around in and around the chest cavity. Right. To actually like peel it back and be inside of it and be like, okay, that's actually like what, what I see on scans, like what that is. It It is a little bit freaky, but I'll be honest, you compartmentalize it. Like you, you're doing intellectual work when you're doing it. So you don't really feel the like humanistic aspect of it until you're like out of cadaver lab and you're walking back to your car and you're like, 
I was just inside a human chest. That's freaky, cool, and scary all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I would like to uh, congratulate you on being the first person in this podcast to get to say I've been inside someone's chest. And then you said it three times. So I applaud you for being the first to say that. That's yeah. it's a momentous day in musings of an AD me, DD, <laughs> my podcast history. <laughs> but that has to be weird too, the whole being in the cadaver class and doing that the first time. In your case, maybe not as weird because you were a paramedic beforehand. Um, but I mean, that I, still has to be a bit different. Yeah, it was different for me because, you know, like I had been dealing with death for a little bit, right? Like I had pronounced a couple people, right? And like, you know, that was, I think, kind of the first shock of my life was being 20, 21 years old, barely able to drink and being like, hey, yeah, your loved ones, like we've tried everything we can. We can't get them back. My protocols say that I can call time of death, time of death now. Um, wow. You know, that's that was a thing that I think I took seriously just because I, I try to have, you know, high ethical standards, but I don't think I fully realized the gravity of it even back then. And then to be in cadaver lab, it was just like, I kind of felt honored, right? Like this person literally donated their body so that I could learn. And then, you know, it's a weird sort of shame thing with my ADHD. I would come into cadaver lab some days a little unprepared because I just procrastinated on like my pre-studying or whatnot. And I'm like inside one system and I'm like not getting everything that I could. Right. Right. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting experience. It was easier in some ways, harder in others. I could not like once we got to the face, that, that was that was the hardest part for me, because I think the rest of it, you can just cover the face and you can right. do a section and it's science and it there's no real humanistic aspect to it. Maybe the hands a little. But when you're like and it, around the face is where you start to get a little bit freaked out. Um yeah, there was stuff to learn, but I don't know how much I retained. No, that makes perfect sense. The, I mean, the face is, you know, what you see all, all the time, you know. So yeah, no, I, I could see where that would be, uh, be strange. And now you've made me think of a weird question: What do they do with the organs after you take them out? Do you put them back in so the person can be buried, or do they like go to a cremation place or something? Yeah, so it's cremation. So the donation process has like a lot of ethical standards behind it. Like people have to, I think, like either see or know someone who has seen like a, like a cadaveric dissection. They have to be okay with the cremation afterwards. They have to be, you know, okay with sharing some information about their medical history so that you know, like, hey, this person had really bad hypertension. So like, you know, when like you go in there, you're probably going to find more you know calcified vessels or like whatnot mm -hmm. just that kind of stuff so there's there's definitely a lot of stuff they have to agree to and then they do agree to cremation so we essentially like the organs go back in so that the whole body can then be cremated but you're keeping everything preserved like day in and day out like we had three months in cadaver lab where okay. like a week or a day or two a week where you would go in and then you would do the dissection on whatever system you were doing and then spray it down with preservant, cover it back up, zip it up. It stays super cold in there so that everything's preserved. And then you just do it like week by week by week. And they last for, you know, cause they've been preserved very well to last for, you know, up to six months. So you have, you have time. And then at the end, everything just gets in their own place. They get, everything gets collected. So Liquids are collected, so it's one person. The solids are collected, so it's one person. And then those all get combined and sent off to cremation. Okay. That's uh, something that I'd never really thought about until you were talking about Cadaver Lab. And I thought, you know what? This is a teachable moment. Yes. It was not so, something I knew before either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, why would you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just one of those things that you don't need to know it until you need to know it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything that you would like to, while I'm actually thinking about this and before it goes away, that you would like to, uh, like advice, hacks, coping mechanisms, you know, 
just anything that you would like to sort of pass on to anyone listening that thinks, you know, I might have ADHD or my son might have it or my daughter might have it or, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think the the number one thing is like not to listen to practitioners who will try to say, oh, well, based on how well you're doing in life in like this XYZ domain, like you don't have it, right? Because if you're also anxious and perfectionistic, like you're probably just going to let that anxiety like drive your output in that section. Like, for example, like me in academics, a lot of like life things that had converged on like me wanting to go to medical school. So like I was just going to do anything it took. And right. I'm quite bullheaded, so I'm not going to, like, say, let, like, someone say no. Um, so I made sure that my grades were, like, perfect. Um, but that's not the case with everyone. And, you know, I think you have to see somebody that's at least going to do, like, a thorough evaluation. And I wouldn't necessarily self-diagnose, but if you're getting kind of told things that don't seem right, you can seek that second or third opinion. Had I done that earlier, I think I would have, everything would have worked out a lot better. Another big thing is like realizing that like self-medicating via either, you know, substances. I know a lot of people just due to the pain of like not being productive or suffering will turn to substances. It's obviously just like covering symptoms up rather than, you know, actually solving the root problem. Even my like kind of really bad caffeine habits. I mean, just ruined my system more than it like actually helped anything. Right. Um, I've noticed that now if I like actually get a good night's sleep and don't overdo it with the caffeine, caffeine has more of an effect. So if I like need it one afternoon just to like pick me up out of a little bit of um, a lethargic mood, I can do that. And then I think the other hack is just realizing that you can kind of trick your brain with deadlines if you want, if you can get the habit habits momentum going. So I've started in medical school acting like I want to get things done three days ahead of time. It never gets done three days ahead of time. It's always getting done right. closer to the last minute, but at least I'm not missing assignments because I'm mm -hmm. shooting for the moon to only hit, you know, or shooting for the stars to kind of hit the moon kind of thing. Right, right. You, if you, you can have like certain hacks like that, that will work. The other big one that the literature actually bears out is exercise. I mm -hmm. think we underestimate lifestyle interventions and ADD all the time. They've done a lot of really good work in kids and some in adults. But I think a lot more work needs to be done. But you actually, from just 30 minutes, 40 minutes of aerobic exercise, as long as your heart rate's getting up to like 140, 150, 160, and you maintain that, like you actually get a substantial benefit just as far as like temporary focus goes. And so making sure that those lifestyle things are like staying in check is I found it at least crucial to managing everything on top of medication. Okay, cool. That's I, I've enjoyed hearing that from uh, everybody so far. And the main thing is you need to talk to a professional, <laughs> you know, if, if you feel that it's affecting your life in not positive ways. But I feel that way about just life in general. A, you know, a therapist is, they're great to have. You know, it's uh, its just that same thing. You got to take care of yourself to, you know, be the best whatever it is you're trying to be in life. And yeah. so that's uh, pretty good. I had not heard the doing exercise can help with the ADHD. And I have been telling myself that I need to get back to the gym because I have some weight that I need to shed and I just haven't been doing it <laughs> and I need to get back in there. And maybe now that I know that it can help me with my ADHD, maybe that will help me go back to the planet fitness. There you go. So, well, we've kind of talked about you know, medical school and how that helps. Um, let me, let me ask you this. I don't know. And if you don't want to talk about it, that that's completely fine. I know that you grew up in an extremely evangelical home mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, you said that you were homeschooled, but did you find that in terms of being in that world that maybe your ADHD kind of helped 
because a lot of times in that world, you know, there's the constant memorizing of Bible verses and, you know, and that type of stuff. And if you made memorizing Bible verses a hyper-focused topic, you know, or subject, that is something that could have been helpful for you. Did you find that it was helpful, even though I know that most evangelicals would probably say that you were demon-possessed and yeah, I found it very helpful. I mean, before I deconverted, I was considered by like acquaintances and family as like one of the most like high upstanding moral ethical people like in faith, like in our family. Like I, yeah, I certainly had my like problems that were deemed like sin or whatnot. But like the fact that I could memorize Bible verses, the fact that I was intellectually astute and like argued for absurd pseudoscience but you know young earth creationism and like whatnot you know made me kind of respected in a way and so it's funny to hear the same people now be like oh you were never a christian and i'm like man that's funny that's not what you said before right Um, (laughs) like i it, it does help in some ways i think if i think it could hurt in others if somebody has a worse case than mine because i think mine is not that it isn't bad, but obviously I'm able to compensate in some way or I wouldn't be at this section of life, like at a you know top 10 medical school doing a lot of stuff and doing it productively. So I think, you know, there's definitely something that I figured out along the way and maybe even consciously I don't realize like what coping mechanism that is. Um, but I could see people and I've heard of stories where people really suffer because they're not interested in memorizing the Bible verses right. or focusing on the religion, you know, lazy and sinful and yada, yada, yada. And, well, he's got demons. There are <laughs> demons in him. No, it's just my brain is wired slightly different. But, yeah, no, it it would be kind of a curse. If you hyper-focused on learning all of the Bible verses, you're good to go. If you don't want to hyper-focus on it and you find that incredibly boring, you're just never going to thrive, which of course in uh, some evangelical families would not be good for the kid at all. Yeah. Which is a whole other podcast. When I was a kid, I remember that uh, there was somebody that went to a church that we went to and he had schizophrenia. And I always felt that people treated him kind of shitty because he had schizophrenia in hearing people say, well, you know, schizophrenia could mean he has. Literally, I'm not making this up, that he could be have demons in him. Because if he prayed to Jesus enough, his schizophrenia would go away. And I just always thought, that's cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sure you've heard similar things oh, growing like up. Similar and worse. I mean, as the Pentecostal branch and, you know, that's every day, right? Like them thinking schizophrenia is demon possession and you know these people react in certain ways to like um you know kind of mimic demon possession too right like it's a kind of a ritual at that point and it makes them feel better because they Mm -hmm. like let the voices out so to speak so it's it's sad because they never really get the treatment they need they're generally people who are reliant on sources like the church for support because they're not going to make it out in society, right? They're going to wind up homeless on the street doing drugs to compensate, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's it, it just it's frankly it's you know fucked left and right. <laughs> there's, <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. no other way to put it, right? They just treat them like crap. And even in the medical profession, like when I was in um rural Florida working at some ERs and in paramedicine, I noticed people treating schizophrenic patients like they were pariahs. And it's like, this guy literally is medicated. Like he's taking care of his stuff. Or even if he's not, like not every schizophrenic is violent. Not every schizophrenic is having an acute psychotic episode, right? Like having schizophrenia does not mean that you aren't like, or can't be a productive member of society in some way. It's just. Right. Or friendly or nice or. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> want to love somebody <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah yeah that i i always found that weird and since you did say uh uh pentecostal was were was, was your church uh occasionally people would break out and dancing type of church I, yeah, this has yeah. nothing to do with what we're talking about other than i just find that fascinating 
Yeah, that, I mean, like people getting slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, the whole nine yards. I've Oh, go ahead, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I still have the gift of the Holy Spirit and can speak in tongues. I can still fake being slain in the spirit. You know, since I'm not in a professional atmosphere, I'm just going to say it It feels a lot like an orgasm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Vanessa and I have actually talked about this a few times. Right. (laughs) You know, just coming from the Pentecostal branch, there's actually a lot of literature by some ex-evangelicals who write about like the similarities and it's it's funny it's just like a way for your you're getting pleasure out of an activity because it means something to you right like you think, right, literally right. think that like the divine creator is like flowing inside of you <laughs> i i have not thought about this good good god i couldn't tell you how long so when i was a kid break dancing was a thing i remember breaking one and two breaking two electric boogaloo i saw them in theaters tells mm-hmm. you how old i am and of course, we all tried to break dance, right? <laughs> At that time, it was a big thing. You know, we all had our parachute pants. So we were visiting a church and they started breaking out dancing. And my dad leans down to me and he goes, you better not start break dancing because I'm going to beat your ass when we get home if you do. And I thought, how did he know I was thinking that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I was 12, 13, <laughs> you know, somewhere along that age. That was a good memory. I hadn't thought about that in quite a long time. Would my dad have actually beat my ass? No. <laughs> but I did not start breakdancing in the in the middle of that church. I I did not know how to fake talking in tongues. So that might not have worked out as well for me as it did for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I think I don't know if it's a gift to be able to confuse your brain as to like why your tongue's working, but I mean <laughs> thanks i guess (laughs) you know we all have to have some sort of skill right (laughs) something that no one else can do your gift is talking in tongues and my gift is making really really delicious gravy there you go you know and i sadly wish i was joking but i am not if you need Mm -hmm. really delicious gravy at a holiday time i am your man there you go you know the god god just hands out gifts so strangely he does. <laughs> to each according to their capabilities, to each according to their needs. Was that God or Karl Marx? <laughs> right? <laughs> I did not see this interview going this way, but I'm glad it did because I enjoy going whatever direction these conversations have taken. Yeah. It, I really do. In all seriousness, though, I really do wish that the the religious community, because it's not just evangelicals. It's like this across a lot of religions where they don't view something like ADHD as being real or, you know, the devil's in you or whatever. If that would go away, so many kids could get so much better help and thrive in life so much better and not have some sort of trauma because you've been told your entire life, you know, oh, you have demons in you. And, you know, some of the stuff, you know, there are people that come in and anoint your head with olive oil or whatever. That's damaging to a kid when it's something that's going on in your, it's just the way your brain is wired. You can't help it. And, you know, if you're an evangelical preacher listening to this, which I highly doubt, but in case you are, <laughs> you need to change that because you're harming kids. You're making people turn into adults with some serious issues. And I know that you can really testify to that if you want to give a minute or two. If not, that's fine. I don't care. Um, Yeah. I mean, I can truly say that like looking back, a lot of the novelty that like my ADHD sought was in religion. And I mean, it turns out that that's not the way to like actually like help somebody thrive in life. I mean, it led to, you know, I think a lot of uh, shame and a lot of issues where, I needed to like hyper-focus on something to get it done. And so it's made it difficult to like balance multiple parts of my life. I know I was talking to you about this at the like beginning when it makes like friendships and relationships hard too, because you're like constantly, it's the people in your atmosphere and your like little bubble Mm -hmm. that you really quote unquote care about the most. Right. Right. And so you're like focusing on them. But like if somebody is outside of your bubble, friend, relationship or whatnot, you have to put in more work than the average person because otherwise you're like just not going to focus on them, right? 
things like that, right? That they there's actually good research shouts showing that like there's lower relationship satisfaction if it's not taken care of. There's lower academic performance, lower job, you know, performance like moving from lower to upper classes. Like it is truly a you know a potential disability if you don't take care of it. And the fact that religion keeps acting like it's just nothing is is frankly you know a societal harm that like many things they should be held responsible for but because right. they get, kind of get out of jail free card of saying oh well, we're religions that were above the law or above human decency you know they get to right. escape that one. it for me the reason it well obviously it affects people as adulthood and children you know all of that stuff but it is because you know, in the U.S., what what is the number? Sixty five percent, seventy percent consider themselves to be religion and, or religious, and so that does have an effect on how you raise your kids and how you treat your kids, and not getting the the support that you need when you have something like ADHD does have lasting impacts on you as an adult. I don't I don't know when I was in elementary school if I ever had a report card that didn't say does not live up to potential. That weighs on you after a while. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, you probably have some sort of idea with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and as far as like relationships, I don't know if I particularly have great advice because that's something I'm still, you know, navigating. Like, I could go three months and not talk to my best friend, Ralph. It's not on purpose. I just will think the times that I think, oh, I need to talk to Ralph are times that I can't do it. <laughs> right? I'm busy doing something else. I can't do it. And then it just sort of goes away. But, you know, I love Ralph like a brother. But there are just times that I'll go that long without uh, talking to him. And a, a perfect example is for Christmas of 2021, I wanted to do one of those things where they like Photoshop your head on like other type posters or whatever. I wanted to do the Step Brothers poster, mm -hmm. you know, where, where they're wearing the Argyle sweaters. So I went to do that and I'm like, I am not paying $80 for a five by seven. I will teach myself to Photoshop before I do that, mm -hmm. which I then did. I spent the next two and a half months teaching myself to Photoshop so I could do this as a Christmas gift for Ralph. Did I talk to Ralph the entire two and a half months I was learning to Photoshop this gift for him? I 100% did not. But I was thinking about Ralph. <laughs> and it, it turned out beautifully. Ralph loved how it. Is it. If I can ask, how has it affected you in your marriage, right? Like how do you and your wife handle, you're obviously around each other. So the proximity thing is not really a factor. Right. Did it affect you when you were first dating? Did it does it continue to affect you as like your relationships deepen? Like how did that work? This may I think that perhaps when we first started dating, that being with her was almost a hyper focus, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just liked being around her and she was somebody that, you know, initially laughed at my jokes and she you know, thought they were funny. And then um, this is going to sound weird. There's a David Lynch movie called Blue Velvet. And Blue Velvet is supposed to be an incredibly serious psychological drama. And I have always found it to be one of the funniest movies ever made, like airplane level funny. I don't know if you've ever seen Blue Velvet. It is so overly acted and so preposterous that I find these lines, the way they're said, just to be hilarious. And they are absolutely not because Dennis Hopper plays a complete psychopath named Frank Booth. But it is so funny. And she thought it was funny, too. <laughs> so, you know, so early on, it was stuff like that. And so we were always, you know, if one of us wasn't working and we were also in our teens when we met. And I think as in our marriage, she has had to compensate for. Um, me having my my ADHD. I suck at due dates for bills. Having automatic payment, <laughs> you know, where it comes out has been so great for me. And so she kind of, you know, helps in that area. And she's helped with 
the kids too, because there were some times where I think that maybe having to start the thing with the kids was a little overwhelming for me, you know, because of the executive function issues. And she was good at doing stuff like that. And she was always the one that was good at remembering when the kids were starting something new. <laughs> yeah. Once, once the thing became routine, I was good at it, you know, and I wouldn't forget. And so I think she kind of has picked up on a lot of stuff like that. And then I'm also, well, one, I couldn't remember. I don't remember birthdays for shit. Facebook. If you're not on Facebook and you have a birthday and I don't tell you happy birthday, that's because you're not on Facebook. It's not my fault. It's yours. And so she does have to compensate, you know, for things like that. And she does. It's really weird. She picks up after me, but I'm not a slob. Cause I, I like hate seeing dirty clothes on the floor. So they're always in the, I always put them in hampers and stuff like that. So I'm, I would almost have to think about it a little longer. I don't think I answered your question very well at all, which shows I have ADHD maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, for me, what it sounds like is it sounds like, like hyper-focused at the beginning stage. And then as you like kind of settled in, like over time, there's been things that she's done to like compensate, but like, it's obviously like worked out and been balanced in some way, you know, but yeah, that it, it's interesting. Cause I think that's kind of like a ubiquitous experience, at least from what I've read with people is like during the honeymoon phase, definitely like a hyper-focused thing. Right. There's none, of, there's none of the traditional like balance that maybe neurotypical people have. Like I think everyone goes through a honeymoon stage, but neurotypical people seem to have like, Maybe in a, more of an ability to have better boundaries. <laughs> right. Yeah. We we're at the we've been married long enough that we don't have, you know, boundary stage. Um, I often think about um this is 40. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie with Paul Red and Leslie Mann. It's the not. sequel to Pregnant One or whatever. So there's a scene where he's like in the bathroom and he's like, honey, honey, come in here. So she walks in there and he's like sitting on the toilet and his legs are sort of spread open. And he's like, I think there's a spot around my butthole. Can you please look at that? It's just like, okay. I'm like, that is the most, they've been married a long time thing in the history of the world. Right. Because uh, <laughs> you don't do that in the honeymoon phase. Yeah. <laughs> that is a, we've been married a long time type of a situation and we're totally there. And yeah, I, it's not that I don't want to be around her. Cause obviously I do. We're still, married and i just don't think that like that hyper focus sort of like at the beginning of the relationship thing is there because i feel like our lives are like so intertwined at this point that i don't sometimes it's weird to separate the two of us if that makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah because you know we've we've been together for hang on 32 years wow I had to think about how old the oldest kid was to <laughs> remember that number. Um, thank you, Misty, for giving me that number to always know how long we've been together. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't, sadly, I wish I could be more helpful in that area. But what will happen is I'm going to think about this incessantly for the next two weeks. So sometime in the next two weeks, to a month you're going to get a message from me on messenger with a more thought out and detailed explanation i like it <laughs> theoretically <laughs> but um do you do you find that it affects uh your relationships that way of course being a medical school that's going to affect relationships anyway because you're just so damn busy but yeah yeah i mean the person i'm dating right now is um she's a single mom and she's got a lot like on her plate so it's kind of interesting because she's like you know our lives like we have enough time and space just due to like schedules and she's mm -hmm. she a pcu like step down icu occasionally icu so she's like busy herself so i mean like i think dating other busy people is like kind of my mo right now um that's kind of what i can maintain because like if someone's asking for like a lot of time it's like hey i'm sorry i just can't i i don't have it like it's right not right <laughs> um and then, you know, I think what I found difficult is the tendency to hyper-focus, at least in past relationships, on the person mm -hmm. and not really be able to see, like, whether the relationship's healthy or not. 
right until like months and months and months in and then I'm like, that would make oh, sense crap there's like some major incompatibilities here it's not working do not like this and then it's also like the being misunderstood right like if somebody isn't very empathetic they right don't understand the adhd part of it so they're like they think you're being an asshole when you're just you know not, say, yeah. interrupting them accidentally or you know just insert random behavior that might be annoying to them right right, I think right. those are more of the issues i've had and then obviously like the proximity thing is i was actually talking to my therapist about this part of it might be of growing up in like evangelical culture where everyone around you is the person you're supposed to be friends with date etc right so it's like right people in your circle are your people but with ADHD, I think that gets amplified because like you only see and remember the people in your circle, the people outside of your circle, you generally forget that they exist. And right. so the people you see every day are sometimes the people you develop like relationships with. And so then when you develop like, say, a friendship or relationship outside of that circle, it can feel a little bit like you have to put forth more effort. Mm -hmm. That right. makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Kind of the things I've noticed um, that make... It's a bit different than neurotypical dating. Right, right. Well, I'm going to ask you one last thing because we have been at it for for a while now. Um, how did you find, of course, I, you were probably still working as a paramedic. How did the like lockdowns and stuff during the pandemic affect you with your ADHD? Because for me, I had no problem staying at home. I, I would use it as an excuse. You want to come over? Oh, I can't. You've heard we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? <laughs> and I used it. And someone was like, yeah, but aren't you fully vaccinated? And I was like, damn it. Shouldn't have shared that. I think for me, when I really look at it, you know, I was coming out of EMS actually during the pandemic. I had stepped off the truck in January 2020 due to other reasons. Got a job in the ED during COVID-19. Mm -hmm. working okay. in the ed as a para ed technician with my paramedic license and you know did okay with that stayed at home a lot but also worked a lot because i needed the money when that kind of passed i think we were like a couple months into lockdowns in florida i started studying for my mcat which is the entrance exam to medical school okay. so i had to focus on that i found that amazing it was so nice to just be able to get away from the stressors all of the like stimuli everywhere all the distractions and just hyper focus in my room on the mcat and just study my butt off for that i did really well on it i got like 98th percentile it's part of the reason i got into a good school like et cetera, right. et cetera. and really i like go back to that i'm like honestly covid was like a gift because it just let me separate from the normal like activating things in the world and just like ease into it that's cool cool and actually I did lie to you. I do have one other question. Where would you like to uh, do your internship? Do you have any state or anything that you think be cool to go to this hospital in X state? Yeah, I think I'm really attracted to some of the work going on in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. I mean, I'm from Pennsylvania originally. And so those state that, that area of the country is attracted to me just because of how much like American history is there. And right. I don't know if I'd like to live there per se, but like I just... I know, notice like a lot of really good work is going on there. To be honest, staying here at Duke wouldn't be bad either. I mean, there's a ton of, there's a ton of right. good stuff going on here. I mean, we're, you know, a top university. I, I kind of want to stay away from some of the California schools just because of the like high cost of living and whatnot. Right. Um, But I, I think that anywhere up the East coast is probably going to be solid for me. I'm, anticipating if I continue doing as well as I have been that I, I should be a shoe in for most of the, you know, top places for internships. Um, but we'll, we'll see how things work out. That can get dicey as well. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And I know that that's obviously you got to apply and be accepted, but I figured I had to hear, I might as well get it on record. Um, there you go. Let's see if they look, if they look this up in a few years, they're like, Hey, you changed your mind. Why'd you do that? <laughs> you said you were never coming to San Francisco. <laughs> you. <laughs> uh. well um i appreciate you coming on i don't i enjoy more the conversation going like we're at a restaurant just carrying on a conversation you know having a nice cocktail or something versus having a series of you know hard interview style questions 
So I never really have any idea of how the, you know, the conversation is going to go. Um, but I'm quite pleased. I thought it was quite interesting hearing uh, the world as an ADHer from uh, your your perspective. Yeah. Well, appreciate you letting me on and uh, sharing all that. It's uh hope somebody gets some benefit out of it and sees that like you, you can with help and compensation, like you can get up to some pretty high places in life. It's just, you know, determining like what's, what's your goal? Why do you want to do it? Do you have good motivation? And then like right. just getting the professional help and figuring it out from there. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like everybody has an aspect of their life that somebody else can find inspirational. It's just, people need to hear, <laughs> you know, whatever it was about that person. I think we get wrapped up too much in celebrity or athlete and everybody's life experience is just as important as theirs. So I, I appreciate getting, you know, life stories and perspectives from people. So I really appreciate you coming on and answering my call. when I asked for ADHDers, especially knowing that you are currently do not have a lot of free time. So I really extra appreciate you coming on. So thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, no problem at all. So um, I'm going to go ahead and end the show, guys. Uh, as I always do, remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Bob Ross proud. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button.